Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Uwaga, uwaga, which is, of course, Polish for Achtung, Achtung. I expect the ire of many, many correspondents for that one. Um, a thank you to Lukasz Radaski, who got in touch after hearing our recent discussion about Poland's miserable wartime experiences. Welcome, everyone, to We Have Ways of Making You Talk, the World War II podcast with me, Al Murray. And me, James Clark. Um, Simon Clark got in touch t- t- on Twitter to ask, is jump Richard jump the We Have Ways official <laughs> catchphrase? <laughs> uh, yeah, why not? Something curiously postmodern is going on here, James. Recently, people got in touch to discuss your remarkable performance on the Beer 52 sponsorship. I'm never going to live that one ad, down, And I? now Simon is wondering if we plan to adopt a line from my rendition of a BT sponsorship ad as our official catchphrase. Oh, don't they know? Achtung! Achtung! Shall evermore be our multilingual rallying cry, whichever language we decide to use. And when we've used them all up, we'll just go back to starting. Again. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm completely with you on that one, Al. And um, uh, lots to discuss, but um, an email here. Yes, Al. An email. An email. God, wow. From Paul Orson. Does he sound old? He does. That sounds like a, a really old, old man. Old man. Actually, with what he says, I think he's you. not going to be a young man. Right. But I may be doing him a massive disservice. Because <laughs> I'm the only young person. Well, I'm not young either. I'm, Christ, I'm not young at all. Stop kidding myself. Uh, um, but, but I don't know many people younger than me that have Citroën. Anyway, this is about Citroën. So he goes, I'm really loving the podcast. 
I know I have to say that to get my email read out, but it's true anyway. Well, thank you, and yes, yes it is. thank you, and yes, it is. <laughs> my ears pricked up during your Polish Pride episode when James mentioned John Gillard, who used to work on old Citroens on the old Kent Road. I drove a 1950 Light 15 as an everyday car for over 10 years, which John maintained. God, good luck with that. I mean, John Gillard, he's a lovely bloke, but he's the most impossible person to A, get hold of, and B, he'd say, yeah, no problem, I'd sort that out by next Tuesday, James. You know, three months later, you were still kind of waiting for your distributor cap to be replaced. Well, but he's, he's waiting on spare parts, antique spare parts from France. I mean, you know. Well, I know, but there's a, there's a company in Belgium that does them, and, you know, it's literally next day yeah, delivery. Leave so means leave, yeah, mate. No, anyway. no, it doesn't, doesn't fool me. <laughs> anyway, he says, James mentioned that he used to have an old Citroen, so maybe, well, I didn't used to, I still do. You could, ha- you could answer my question about them. I know tractions are often associated with the French resistance, but I've also heard they were used extensively by the Germans. Can you shed some light on this? Thanks, Paul Orton. Obviously, officially an old person as I'm using it. <laughs> there you are. Proves your point. Um, yes, I can. So, so what happened was um, France uh, on the first of January, nineteen forty, mm. was the most automotive um, nation in Europe and the second in the entire world. There apart were from the US, apart from the US, so second to the US, and there were um, eight people for every motorized vehicle in France in the summer of nineteen thirty nine. So there was a lot, and that figure was fourteen for Britain. They couldn't all fit in the one car though. No. Well, they could if they had a traction avant commercial, I can tell you. <laughs> or familial, even. Uh, um, that figure was 14 for Britain. It was 47 for Germany. It was 106 yeah. or something for Italy. So um, there was a lot of cars in France and not so many cars in Germany. So when Germany conquered France, they half-inched them all hmm. and used them for themselves. And the most common car in France in 1939 straight 1940 was the Citroën Traction Avant. So that's why the Germans just requisitioned them, appropriated them, used them as for the Gestapo and all the rest of it. And interestingly, by the 31st of December 1940, there were just 8% of the cars that they had at the beginning of 1940 still in France. They'd being all be used nicked. by the French. They'd all be nicked by those evil Nazi bastards, including lots of Citroëns. Because after all... A big part of what Germany was engaged in was taking stuff from its neighbours um, uh, to, yeah. to plump its pillows with. Of course. Yeah. And that's what they did. They used, they used everything. And that's why they had 2,000 different types of vehicle for Operation Barbarossa when they launched it in June yeah. 1941. 2,000. Because they were which required different coils, different distributor caps, different... Check uh, tanks... Yeah. I mean, the, the bit of Polish some, vehicles, Polish vehicles, some British machine guns in there, lots I mean, of British stuff, yeah, yeah. All lots sorts of French, yeah, 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 yeah. So anyway, recently I was filming in um, in Normandy, and I just get so sick of people going, "Oh, that's a Gestapo car, that is." When I drive around in my Citroen, so I painted FFI all over it just to make it absolutely <laughs> clear which side of the fence I was positioned. Now we um, uh, we started off in Polish. I th- I think. Um, uh, we um, because of World on Fire. Because World on Fire, of course, is uh, is up and running on the BBC. It's Sunday nights. It's big Sunday night drama of a, a story of everyday folk caught up in I mean, the extraordinary world. events. Extraordinary events involving ordinary people. And my word, did you know Poland was part of the Second World War? I had no idea. Did you know that, James? I had no, no idea. I didn't, no. And it's and the and there's could it not brought, be over? He's said married that. this Polish girl and he's brought her back and it's not working out. Right. Anyway, but he hasn't brought her back yet. Well, he hasn't brought her back yet. The plan was he's going bring it back and he didn't bring it back anyway that's spoilers but the point that and it's and it's your classic bbc wide canvas um drama shot in prague 
um, with uh, the Eiffel Tower CGI'd into the background, um, and so on. But I think the thing is, is what it's done is it's driven me um, to Roger Morehouse's book, um, uh, which I will will be which I've just filleted about called First to Fight, which is about the campaign in Poland in September of 1939, which I think it's fair to say. Not a lot of people know very much about this. No, and you, you and me the same. Because obviously, when I was doing my, um, when I was doing my first part of my War in the West trilogy, I obviously looked into this at some length. But the whole point is the clue is in the title that it's really the West rather than the East. So yeah. I, I did deal with the Polish campaign, but but kind of it's because it, it's sort of written down as a prelude, isn't it? But but, but I didn't go in detail. So I'm. Enormously grateful to Roger as well. Well, it's, well, it's a fantastic book. I mean, it is the, a really good book. The, but the, you know, and he and he, uh, it, it, it contains. So in in the first episode of um, of uh, uh, World on Fire, there's the the Danzig Post Office, um, uh, at which you know, judging by what's in the book and what happened in the program, isn't isn't far off. You know, there's this because Danzig's this free city. It's a yep. German. Because after all, we've got this we've got this ethnic crazy paving. Um, in Poland, because Poland was divided into three by Austria, Germany, and Russia um, until nineteen and, uh, in about seventeen ninety two or something. That's right, and well, and you've got Poles then fighting for the French in the ho- and what you have is a long st- the long history of Poles fighting in various imperial armies, hoping that what's going to happen at the end of that particular conflict is the Poles will be patted on the back and be told, "Okay, you can have Poland now," and it never happens. Um, Not at, until 1919. 1919, after the First World War, when, when, when as Churchill says, the War of the Giants has ended now, the, now that now it's the Battle of the Minnows or Midgets or something. Yep. And basically, you, you've got, Woodrow Wilson says, uh, uh, um, self-determination of the people, so new countries emerge from the collapsed yes. Central European Empire. So the Austro-Hungarian Empire... But, and ends, there's a massive but Well, here. it's coming, yeah. So, so, so I'll get there, don't worry. So what, so what you have, of course, is Yugoslavia created out of what's left of the Austro-Hungarian... remnants of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Czechoslovakia, of course, is, which is Bohemia and Slovakia. You know, so all these sort of... All these sort of new countries forged in the settlement of Versailles. But, and the but, of course, is these countries may look tidy on a map, but they contain lots of different ethnic uh, uh, configurations. So in Poland, you have 800,000 Germans. I think it's a bit more than that. It's more Maybe like one and a half more. million. Is it, is it really? Yeah, 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 I really think it is. Right. Maybe. So, so, so. A lot. A lot. You've four million Ukrainians, probably. Yes. You've at least three million Jews. Um, and a whole load of Belarusians. Bi- yep, Belarusians. And, and also, you've got Poles. And it's called Poland now, so everyone's Polish. And you've also got like a, a government that a government that's come through a war. So they defeat the, the uh, Poland exists after the First World War, and then they defeat the Soviets. And you've got Pilsudski, who is basically a military dictator in a kind of managed, so by the mid, managed mid, democracy. Mid nineteen thirties, it is to all intents and purposes. A dictatorship. Yeah. You um, know, democracy is yeah. effectively and, and it's running a foreign policy where the idea is it's not going it, to... It's not. It's going to be friendly to its two big, really fucking scary neighbours of Germany and Russia, who both clearly have designs on it. And the Russians, because they, you know, they defeated the Soviets really recently. And the Germans, because the Germans are licking their chops and looking at East Prussia, which is a little which bit of Germany. separate. Separate. And it is separated it's, by it's an island the Danzig with, Exactly. It's an island in Poland of Germany with Lithuania and Estonia and Latvia to, it, to its north. And it's probably fair to say that most of those one and a half million Germans or 800,000 or whatever it is are in that bit, yeah. that strip of the Danzig Corridor. Or they're in places... 
Or along the uh, along the, the or, western yeah. border, or of Poland, which used to like be Germany, Bidgosh, which it was yes. known as Bromberg, yes. and you've got uh, Breslau, which is now Rotswaf, because the, yes. all of the borders were redrawn yes. after the Second War. Anyway, so the Danzig Post Office, which is in World on Fire, is the Danzig. Danzig is a free city, and Danzig. So what that means is, is a German city that now belongs to, sort of belongs to Poland, but doesn't quite, but is there to give Poland access to the sea yes. as a port. Gdansk now, and the Danzig post office. The Germans decide first of September that they're going to they're going to take the Danzig post office because it's incredibly symbolic of the Polish government in a, what they regard as a German territory. You've also got the Westerplatte, which is a a Polish army base, and the Schleswig-Holstein cruiser or battleship, yes, yes. Put, which actually fires the first shot of the war, doesn't fires it? Fires the first shot of the war at four forty eight a.m. first of September nineteen thirty nine. Yeah, and basically, it's been sent on a military visit in commas with my fingers <laughs> to Danzig, um, and it's got a company of marines hiding in it that the poles don't know about. Yes, and the big idea is that when the when they decide the balloon's gone up, Schleswig-Holstein will, will tootle out of port and then tootle around the corner and shell the the Polish military base, and then the marines will leap out and storm it heroically. Now, of course. That doesn't quite, quite happen, happen. quite pan out. But the invasion meantime starts. Yes, and you've this running story of the poles being pretty useful tactically when they can be, when they can channel the Germans and and all that sort of thing. But in the end, being overwhelmed by a modern army and an army. There's an amazing fact that Rush, that Roger has in the book that the German Panzer Division. Um, uh, costs the same per year as the Polish army. Full stop. Full stop. And the Polish army might be the fifth biggest standing army in the world. Yep. But it's equipped to fight a mobile cavalry. And they do have they do post. have some tanks and they have some half yeah. decent artillery. But let's face it, they're they're really they they can't compete with. Well, the it's an agrarian. It, you know, when we've talked before about yeah, Germany's Germany kind. Of, well, no, I'm just going to say. I'm just going to say that Germany. We've talked about Germany before being kind of agrarian with some industry, but Poland was was agrarian. Agrarian. Yes. It was a peasant a peasant country. Yes, it was. And had and had got the whiff of the idea you needed an air force and some and mechanized warfare, but couldn't afford it. Couldn't put it together, and also had beaten the Red Army with armored trains yep. and flying columns of men and and. Cavalry, and famously cavalry is the thing in 1939 of lances against panzers, which is in, in World on Fire. Which never got, happens. Well, it doesn't happen. So what they've got... They've got well, it cut, well, no, it doesn't... It it kind doesn't, of... It they doesn't, don't... Doesn't happen, like, no, doesn't so happen like that. No, what happens is that they, they've got cavalry, which is basically to get them to, from A to yeah. B quickly yeah. because they haven't got enough cars and yeah. petrol. Uh, and that's what they use. And once once they get to where they're fighting, they then dismount and operate as as, as yeah, infantry. And there are times where German Panzers are then counterattacking. Yes, and they're on is, their horses. Which but is, they're not. But, but you don't have lots of charging. No, but there's a, there is an incident where the Germans counterattack with Panzers, and that goes into that's the thing that's gone into law yes. L O R E as as cavalry yes. against Panzers. And Guderian um, at one point has to go round saying to people if they come at you because the Germans basically there is a cavalry there are two or three cavalry charges where the Germans all run, the infantry all run off because yeah. people turn up on horses and set their guns up and start you know and they, and and the Germans are put into panic and Guderian has to go round saying you'll stick if the if these cavalry turn up you're sticking around and it's in the first three or four days the cavalry are actually pretty effective yeah as mobile, super mobile light infantry, yeah. and as an anti-tank screen. So the other yeah. thing is they've got this, they've got a Bofors gun, 
and an anti-tank rifle, yep. and we've talked before about handheld anti-tank weapons, they turn up and are really effective because the Panzer one's only got 15 millimetres of armour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, there is this thing... Yeah. That the Poles it's not how the it's not how the how the myth would have it. That's the that's the and the Poles point. do not roll immediately and no. fight and fight and fight and fight and fight. No, but what's really interesting about about where they fight is is that they've got a really really obvious defensive line. Yeah, which is the River Vistula. The problem is that might have been in a kind of old border, yeah. but it's not on the western border anymore. Yeah, and they it's it's not like they haven't fought it through at all. I mean, they because they. British and the French are really getting them to encouraging them diplomatically to try and back down, and they they just don't. And the reason they don't is because they think actually we have fought this through. We've got a half decent sized army. We can defend ourselves a little we bit. We beat the Russians, but we've also got just done a deal. You know, fa- thanks to the twenty fifth of, of August, we've now done a deal with Britain as well as France that they yeah. will guarantee our sovereignty, yeah. and they'll come in on our part and give us arms and material and all the rest of it, and we might just be able to hold out. But to make it seem like they're not just running away. They have to defend the western border. Whereas actually what makes militarily much greater sense is to retreat to the Vistula, where there is a very obvious defensive line which runs roughly kind of north-south. Yeah. And where they can really probably hold off the Germans possibly quite effectively and wait until they, but they are the, being, the French and the British but They are being attacked from three sides anyway. So there's, there's, there's well, well, not the German state, army not, coming, coming out of Prussia, East Prussia eventually. Yes. And, and then there's the, their, their own Western frontier and then their Southern frontier yeah. where the Slovakian army, are, are, of course, yes, fan- that's true. joining in, fancying a slice of, uh, of Poland. Because after all, one of the things that happens in Czechoslovakia in 38 is that everyone takes a bite out. It's not just the Germans who take a bite out of what's left of Czechoslovakia. Yeah. Um, you, you know, everyone re, everyone realigns their borders post, post-Munich, yeah. don't they? Yeah, post, yeah, they post do. Post-Munich. The problem is, is the speed of the spearhead, Yeah. which again is the Panzers, Yeah. the Panzer Division. And actually, we shouldn't say Panzers because it isn't. A Panzer Division is not Panzers. It is an all-arms motorised yeah. force of motorised infantry, artillery, reconnaissance vehicles, and of course tanks as well. That's what a Panzer Division is. That is your, that's your driving force. That's what enables the Germans to act in the way that they've always traditionally done when they when they start a battle, which is to hit your Schwerpunkt, your, your yeah. main point of impact, incredibly hard, Envelop. So the envelopment is always part of the kind of sort of German stroke Prussian kind of military yeah. tradition. And, and knock your enemy off with, with an enormous speed. That, that's how they've always done it, all the way back to Frederick they've the Great. Got Frederick the, the they've got the latest way of doing it. They've just got the latest else. way of doing it. Yeah. The, what really does for the Poles, I think, is first of all, the fact that they haven't got the best defences positions by staying on the western border. Yeah. Um, so they're kind of overrun by the spearhead. The thing that really discombobulates them no, actually just puts the shit up them, is the Luftwaffe, yeah. which is incredibly effective. Because actually, there's lots of incidents where the Panzer Division, post, post the campaign, there's quite a lot of kind of deep thinking about, are these Blitzkrieg tactics working? Is this, is this kind of way of using Panzer units and stuff? Is it all working? There's quite a lot of instances and quite a lot of criticism where they're not working very well with the infantry divisions. And actually, they just need to sharpen up their amp massively yeah. before they, they try again in the West. They also nearly run out of ammunition, and that is the big crisis. Had the Poles held on another week or yep. 10 days or whatever, and had the Russians not... Im- Actually, that's just a ridiculous what if, isn't it? That really is, because they do invade, of course, the Russians. Well, cause the, because but, I was going to say, you know, in the end, the rugs pulled out from under the Poles, whatever they're, whatever they're doing, because 17th of September, the, the, the Russians join in. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and and their generals meet in the middle and shake hands and say, "Well done, everybody. That was a fan- that was a spiffing invasion, wasn't it? Yeah. Here's your half of Poland. We'll take ours." But also, what I hadn't appreciated, which I think Roger does really, really well in his book, is bring out this whole thing about about the Russians, which or the Red Army, is that. It's actually, it's not consistent how they play it. So lots of Poles go, oh, great, thank goodness, you've come to help us get the Germans. And they kind of sort of play along with this for a little bit until they go, oh, yeah, by the way, can you just put your rifle down? Yeah. Uh, We're now in charge here. Yeah. Um, It absolutely is a military invasion, but it's not a military invasion like the German one, where it's all kind of, you know, everyone firing and Stukas dive bombing and bombs and machine guns going off left and right centre. It's a bit more kind of, let's just creep across the border and let's just kind of sort of, before you know it, you're 20 miles in. Yeah. Well, time for a short break. Fear not, we're planning to make many outrageous claims when we return. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and James Holland, of course. Um, well, we first half we were talking about Poland, and what we do on this is uh, when we get to a break in the half, we say, what are we going to talk about in the second bit? And we then carried on talking about Poland so we're going to carry on talking about Poland. We are. Because, it's a big subject. We haven't done it justice yet. No, not even close. Not I mean, even one close. Of the, one of the things, of course, that was happening in, in Poland, and of course, what what Poland is, and we, I used the word prelude earlier, I think that's the right word, because in here in the UK, it's a prelude. Something happens in Poland that's our tripwire that means we finally have to do something about Germany. Yeah. And that's that's basically, obviously, the Royal Navy then get then get a wriggle on and, and start fighting the Germans literally all over the world, wherever they find them. Guy Gibson yeah. goes, on a, goes on a mission to Wilhelmshaven yeah. on September the 3rd. Yeah, exactly. There's some of that. But the Poles have got it in their heads that the, the British are going to show up and join in. And the French are going to show up and join in. And, of course, that doesn't happen. No. And they've been promised British weaponry because the Polish have got... They've got basically obsolete fighters they've got a tank based on a on the vickers uh, uh interwar vickers tank i remember which one um they've got they've got some heavy metal but but not very much of it their bombers are regarded as as cutting edge tech yep but beyond fighters fighters a bit, bit the, the fighters, hotels yeah bit. yeah and there's some biplanes and stuff it's, yep. you know but they've been promised stuff you know a dozen hurricanes and a, one spitfire and some other odds and sods and obviously but you know the classic british thing of selling selling someone your old tech so that if it push comes to shove you can shoot it all down yeah with your new tech anyway that you've got this you you've got this promise and then of course the french and the british do nothing and in fact spend the first two days basically trying to dodge having to come to the ultimatum yeah so, you know or, or certainly vacillating wildly and chamberlain kind of finds himself in a position where he he has to he has to declare war that that the mood has changed and he has to de- he really has to declare war and the french really have to, they have to declare war as well and it's kind of oh, bollocks because <laughs> well, Roger, but Roger also Roger Morehouse in his in his yeah, new book which we've been talking about the first half uh, what's yeah. it called first first to fir- fight first to fight um and very good it is too but but he argues that actually it's sort of british and french arrogance that uh, assumes that the Poles the, won't the threat, fight. No, no the, the threat is such that Germany won't actually follow through. Yeah. I'm not sure about that. I, when, you, when you look at all the kind of rhetoric of the summer of 1939, there is this, this heavy weight that most people recognise that war is now just around the corner. So I'm not sure that that is true. I think that there's a kind of hope that the threat of going to war 
is going to deter Hitler, but I don't think anyone really believes it. Well, certainly in France well, well, or in Britain. Yeah, but in Germany, Hitler, 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 Hitler absolutely thinks that the British and the French won't follow through. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you end up. But I'm with, talking about Britain and France. Yeah, yeah, but the, I mean the, the, the entire picture. So the polls, the polls are thinking, well, well, this is going to pull our, this is going to save our bacon. The, 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 and Hitler is he really can't make his mind up, can he? That he thinks the British probably won't come th- come through for Poland. He doesn't think so. He thinks, well, if they didn't do so for Czechoslovakia, why should they for yeah. Poland? I mean, why, why would the British care? It's yeah. not in their interest yeah. to go to war over yeah. Poland. I mean, yeah. they've only been a country since 1919. And, you know, I mean, from Hitler's... And this is, again, goes back to what we've said before about, about Hitler, is Hitler only sees the world through his own narrow prism. So yeah. for him, it makes no sense for Britain to declare war because... Poland is a total abomination that yeah, just yeah. needs to be run off the planet. Yeah. Um, the Soviet Union feel exactly the same way because of all those, you know, because of what happened in 1919. Because of, of the 500 years history. Uh, 500 years of history. Yeah. But Hitler is... is so, so Hitler thinks, well, I don't... Th- you know, I think that Poland's an abomination. I don't think it's, that it's worth Britain fighting for, so therefore they won't. Yeah. But completely misunderstanding that Britain has... Run out of run out of patience. Run out of patience, but also recognizing that that you know you can't keep appeasing Hitler. The the appeasement yeah. was kicked into touch from the invasion of Czechoslovakia. Yeah. Well, he went back on his word. He, he's not a man you can trust. Uh, um, he needs to be stopped, and that threat has to be upheld. It's also it's a matter of honor now. They yeah. they have said, you know, on the twenty fifth of August, they've done this this deal. The British have with the with the Poles and said we will. Honour your sovereignty. We will go to war if, if Germany invades. You know, that is the kind of final ultimatum to Hitler, and Hitler has completely misread it. And when Britain and then subsequently France later on that afternoon on the 3rd declare war, you know, Hitler turns to von Ribbentrop, who's his foreign minister, and goes, what do we do now? Yeah, now what? Yeah. Now what? Goering, on the other hand, who's been furiously trying to um, secure peace terms and, and trying, you know, doing all sorts of diplomatic uh, um, chicanery through sort of Swedish arbitrators and all sorts. Uh, you know, he's in tears about the whole thing. I mean, you know, German people do not want to go to war. There's also been this huge, furious propaganda campaign to make it out to German people, good, honest German folk, that it's it's the Poles what are guilty here. Yes, because there's there's bombs blowing up railway stations and all sorts of what what people would call false flag stuff going on. Yeah, and there's the um, SS uh, invading yeah. that, that d- destroying that German radio which station. Then, which then, yeah, Gleiwitz. Dressed as, yeah, yeah his little gang of SS people. But, but which then metastasizes into the, the terrorism business of you then have atrocities um in german ethnic areas in poland yes where where you get well you get essentially completely complicated events so in this town that was called bromberg that's called uh Bidgosh, yes where you have um ethnic germans get caught up in the um we're being liberated rhetoric and attack polish people or polish soldiers the polish soldiers shoot back i mean uh, Knowing who fires first in any of this is extremely difficult to to figure out, and then you get the Germans once once they've taken this town, they then turn up and you get summary executions, and the Wehrmacht with its with it with the ordinary Wehrmacht soldier, his blood boiling at the idea that Germans have been um, uh, mistreated or murdered by people he regards as Untermensch yep. Poles, and you get this 
outburst of immediately as soon as the second world war starts you get this out these outbreaks of racial violence yes and it's not the ss it's not just the einsatzgruppen it's, no, no, no. it's, it's in the wehrmacht well. it's absolutely and, yeah. and interestingly you get these situations as well and there's a very famous incident where Le- lenny riefenstahl is visiting the poland to see the conquest in action and she sees jews being singled out and murdered by men, yeah, and and interestingly, the officers are unable to control their men. Yeah, and you have this thing where in in the and it's Wehrmacht, you know, because after all, if you've been told Jews are your enemy since you and if you're 19 and the Nazis have been in power your whole life, affect your cognizant life, you've been told Jews are the enemy. You get somewhere, someone shooting at you, you obviously assume it's Jews. You know, blah blah blah, and off it goes. And there's a very famous picture of Lenny Riefenstahl in tears as she sees this. Yeah, happening. she's completely shocked, isn't she's she? Absolutely she shocked. Can't hide it. Horrified. Can't hide it in this picture. It's worth googling it. Yep. Lenny Riefenstahl in Poland, and she's of course what she doesn't do is then go back and do anything about it no of course but, not but 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 it starts right from the start and when people i mean and when people i mean one of the one of the one of the things about for instance the holocaust is when people talk about the holocaust and they picture the death camps and auschwitz is the is that the that's the that's the if that's the end of the story it's certainly not where the story starts it's not and it's not where an awful lot of people meet their end is it's happening right away in poland straight from the start yeah, uh, and and it's part of the campaign because after all, the Nazis regard the, themselves also, as a completely revolutionary force. So what they're doing, the front line, the home front is the front line. But in that but respect. also in in the build up to the Second World War, in the late second half of the well, in the nineteen thirties. I mean, the, the Poland having been reformed, those who are Poles do are, well. They, they, well, they, they bang the drum of of Polish nationalism. Yeah. And you do have all these minorities yeah. there, whether they be Germans or Belarusians yeah. or Ukrainians or Russians or whoever they are. And they do really kind of put it in their face. Yeah. And by the late 1930s, you have got effectively a, a Polish dictatorship in, yeah. in, in, in Poland. And if you are a German national, you know, a former German national living in Poland, you would feel incredibly uncomfortable yeah. and if you are a normal you know for most Germans who see understandably that Versailles was an aberration then you would want those territories back so I think you can completely understand why this is such a perfect storm by the time mm. you get to September 1939 but I think what is really interesting one of the things that, that, that Roger Morehouse brings out in his book is you know he points out that in terms of kind of militarily the circumstances in which the Germans invade France and Low Countries is exactly the same as as it is in Poland and yet that politically it's completely it's, uh, uh, and emotionally and nationalistically it's completely different and, and the point he makes out is there are over 600 individual massacres yeah. of groups of people in the Polish campaign and there are three in Northern France yeah. in 1940 but that's because you, 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 you can look at the Second World War as it has an eastern face and a western face um, uh, and this is its eastern face, which is there right from the start, obvious right from the yes. beginning. Um, yeah. yeah it's, it's, and it's sort of unfinished business from the Thirty Years' War, if we're completely honest, back yeah. in the 17th century. Yeah, I mean, yeah, th- yeah. that is what it is. And, of yeah. course, the Thirty Years' War is fascinating because it was also incredibly violent. It's the most, I, th- I think as a proportion of deaths to the population, it is... It, it ev- well, no it, it was certainly the most violent ever up until the Second World War. Well, it might even yeah. trump the but that, Second but that's World War. Why, but, well, which is why Brandenburg was essentially depopulated completely and, and Berlin had to be founded as a, as a sort of 
as an open city to get people to go and live there because there was no one left because they'd all been yeah. they'd all been killed. Uh, anyway, that's, that's 1618 to 1648. It's kind of the same 1914 to 1945. It, maybe that's another that's our second Thirty Years' War in Europe. Maybe that's the other way of looking at well, it. Well, I know Gary Shepard. I mean, Gary Shef- people, Professor Gary Sheffield. I'm sure yeah, you've met. Yeah, I mean, yeah. he, he's he's very into this, and this is also a theory that is argued in in certain American quarters as well. Exactly the same theory. Yeah. So it's interesting. It's an interesting one. Yeah. Well, there we are. That's all we've got time for, I'm afraid, though. I mean, as you, as ever... I still don't feel we've really gripped I know, and there's a donkey somewhere without a hind leg, isn't there? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what do we do? Do we, do we just discuss Poland again at another time? Do we, get, do we get in Roger at some point? I don't know. Well, maybe... But, maybe. But we just, I just feel this is, this is such a big subject. Yeah. And, and one thing where I would applaud old Rog on this is, is actually for bringing this back to our attention. Yeah. He's absolutely right. Yeah. He's absolutely right. Yeah. Well, anyway... Um, that is all we've got time for today. Naradia, so, um, as our Polish friends would say. <laughs> yes. Naradia. Very good. Um, I'm Al Murray. Nice. I quite like that. That's much. James Holland. Don't forget, hashtag we have ways. Email uh, we have ways podcast at gmail.com. That's all in one word. Um, if you're ancient. Um, or very young. Or very young. <laughs> Thanks for listening. <laughs> yeah, cheerio. <laughs>